You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So as we're continuing our hermeneutic study, tonight I want to talk to you about what role does context play in the Bible, okay? So what that means as we look at it, and we're about four weeks in here, that uh, even without acknowledging it, we project our context on Scripture in order for it to say what we want it to say, right? So the danger of coming to Scripture is that a lot of times we kind of say we want to do a certain amount of things in it, and we've got to make sure that as we study Scripture, we must filter the reader's content uh, context through the knowledge of the author's context. So I don't want to just go ahead and put my context on Scripture and expect it to say something to what I want it to say to. And this can happen in a lot of different ways, but uh, I'll give you an example. There are many people who I know who will read a passage of Scripture that speaks about a narrative situation, and it might be someone leaving something, and they go, so therefore I can leave my job because so-and-so left the cave. Well, that may be what God is saying, but we need to make sure that we really understand what's happening there, not just applying our context to something. So uh, Hebrews 4.12, it says it this way, For the word of God is living and what? It's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what the word of God does, is it comes in, it's alive, it's not some kind of dead document, but it... Through God's word, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, right? Comes down to deep where we are of, of, of joints and marrow, so fine-tuned. And it helps us discern the thoughts and even the intentions of the heart. So when we open up God's word, what it's doing is allowing us to truly see not only what's happening, but what we're trying to hope is going to happen, right? It kind of gets into who we are and how God has played us together. So two ways I want us to look at this. Number one is the reader's context. So that would be you and I, right? We read the Bible. What's the context when we read it? But then also the author's context and how that rolls out. So the reader's context and what that means is when you and I read the Bible, we are desperately looking for answers typically, right? If you're going to go to it... um, I've always said that many people read the Bible uh, like a yearbook. And if you remember getting a yearbook, typically what happened is you look at the front cover and then you go to a certain page. And typically most people go to the yearbook, they go to the back of the yearbook because you were looking for a certain name, right? Whose name are you looking for? Your name, right? So I'd go there, Agnew, comma, Travis. Okay, I'm on page 7, page 19, and page 144, right? And the only pages I'm really concerned with are the pages that I'm on, Right? And so I go looking for those pages, and I could care less about this club or that athletic team. Why? I'm not on it, right? All I care about is the pages that have anything to do with where I am in that moment. And this is the way a lot of people read God's Word, right? I'm struggling with anxiety. Okay, go to the back of the book. Look at the theme index. Oh, is there verses on anxiety? Oh, great. I'm looking for fear. Is there some verses there on fear? I'm looking for a decision, whatever it is. And you just go to the Bible like it's a yearbook, looking for pages where you are. And it helps us remember, folks, we are not the hero of the Bible. Okay? You're not the main character of it. In fact, we are referenced in it, but the main character of the Bible, spoiler alert, is only one in one person. Anybody want to guess who that is? It's God, right? He, he's the main character of this. So the book is about him, and then we find ourselves knowing how to step into context with that. We have to go in it thinking through the reader's context because a lot of times we come in with what I call preconceived notions, right? You open up the Bible, and there are certain things you automatically assume about the text because of this. We come with something called pre-understanding. Pre-understanding is a dangerous collection of preconceived notions that we bring to the text before actually studying the text itself. 
So we typically will come to the text assuming certain things, assuming that we know certain things, and jump into it, and sometimes dangerously so because you have a collection of preconceived notions of what you think it means because we do a really good job of taking verses out of context and applying them to certain situations, right? So you're like, oh, I've heard that verse before. I know what that's about. But in actuality, you may not know what it's about. Pre-understanding includes previous exposures, both positive and what? And negative to the text. So sometimes we come along and we can include previous exposures, both positive and negative to the text. So we can read something, see something, and we think, you know what? I don't know if, if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but you had some type of exposure to it, and you think something about the text before you actually study it. So just for reference, we're going to be going to a few different places um, tonight, but I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 18 for a second, okay? Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at some words of Jesus that are very much misinterpreted. I've always thought a fun sermon series to be would would be God didn't say that, okay? Or uh, the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. That would be really fun to do because there's a lot of them, okay? This is one of them, and uh, I've got it written out there for you on your handout, but I, to make sure we understand the context, I want us to see this. Because if I were to ask you, what does this verse mean? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them, okay? Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there among them. All right, let me ask a question. Where do you typically hear this verse quoted? Anybody have a context where that is? Typically, I've heard it in church, but most likely in what size churches? Small churches, right? Hey, but it's okay. There's only a few of us here today where two or three are gathered together in his name. He's there with us. That's encouraging, right? Nobody else is here but me and your mama and your sister. They're all here, right? And we're like, hey, this is good. We got two or three gathered together. This is all we need is Jesus, right? Now, is that statement true, that where two or three are gathered together in the name of Jesus, he's there with us? Well, sure. But guess what also is true? Wherever you go, if you walk with Jesus, guess what? He's there, right? He says he's promised never to leave you or forsake you. He promised to be with you always. So it's not like, I need a couple more of y'all to get together so I can experience the presence of Jesus that's not what this is about, right? I can't experience Jesus and let everybody else get to the room with me. That's not what this is saying. So look at, um, I want you to notice, this, this would be something that if you just learn this practice, it's going to help you out a lot. Do you see verse 20 there, Matthew 18, is at the end of a paragraph? And you, is, you see that in your scripture? <clears throat> What's the first verse in the uh, paragraph? 15, okay? So typically paragraphs mean here's a contained body of thought, right? You don't want to just take the last sentence of a paragraph out and just sort of jump on it. So let's just take this paragraph. Just think paragraph for a second into the life of Jesus. See what he's saying. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be uh, to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Interesting. What is this paragraph about? If you had to just sum it up, 
and one phrase, starting out with if your brother is caught in sin, this is what you need to do. And then all of a sudden he says, bring it before the church and where two or three are gathered in my name. What is this about? Anybody? Take a guess. Accountability, right? We agree about that? Okay. So this is what Jesus says. Okay. He says, if you find out that your brother sins, go and post about it on social media, right? No. Uh Uh-uh. If your brother sins, phrase it as a prayer request and tell everybody that knows them, right? I would say this if they were here, okay? But I'm just, I'm not gossiping. I'm just want to pray for them, okay? You know, we want to pray for them. But she's in sin right now, y'all. You know, that's how it typically goes, right? Um, We do a really good job of turning gossip into prayer requests, supposedly. But uh, this is is what happens, right? He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his, his, his sin in private, Right? If he doesn't listen, what do you say? Bring along just one other person. So now you got a partner. Private, partner. Then it becomes another P. Guess what? Public somewhat. He says, bring it before the church. Right? We just had a church membership gathering a couple hours ago. New people are going to join our church. And I got to talk to them about this passage. And they're all like, what in the world does this mean? Okay? Well, this passage, when Jesus said the word church, it was a word called ecclesia. It meant group, assembly, gathering. Um... We, we know church to be a building. We think membership rosters, and that's fine and good. But I think deep down what this is saying is, um, any of you ever heard the term intervention? Anybody? Okay. Intervention got this from Jesus. Get the most important people in the room towards this person and say, we all see it. Bro, we love you. Sister, we love you. This has gone too far. This is not one person. It's not two people. We all see this, and we're worried about you. And so here it is. I see sin. I go to him one-on-one. I don't listen. Bring somebody else. Here's a partner now. Now it may become in a group kind of setting to say, hey, um, we're, it says tell it to the church. I believe, especially in our context, I'll give you an example. There's, there's a group that in our church who uh, had somebody that was had very destructive patterns in the group. And the group leader went to this person. So I'm worried about you. and I can stop whenever I want to. I'm fine. I'm not hurting anybody but myself. Yeah, and that's what we're concerned about, right? You need to stop. I'm fine. Don't bother me. Second meeting was bringing somebody else along, right? Didn't listen to that. And then they came to me and they said, Pastor, can we um, exercise church discipline on our brother? Do we have your authority to do that? I said, what do you mean? They said, we want to all of our group go in and we want to just say we're worried about you. And because he's acting like an unbeliever right now, is it okay for us to address it as that? So this guy finally decided to show up to his gospel group one day, and the teacher said, you know, I had a lesson plan already scheduled, but since you're here, oh, I forget the lesson plan. We want to talk to you. And all of us see the patterns that you're in and all the destructive stuff that you're going through, and you're not living according to the calling that God's got on your life. And you are hurting your family, and you are hurting your witness, and we love you enough that we're willing to make things awkward to stop this right now. That's called being the church, folks, right? Now, I, I say that to go, um, yes or no question. Could I do something this evening that would negatively affect the reputation of this church? Yes or no? Yes. yes. You can too. All of us can, right? So we need that accountability in our life. So Jesus says, bring it before the church if it gets bad. Bring it before the group. I don't think he meant, this is not what's going to happen, by the way, next week. I'm going to get it for my sermon. Before I preach today, I've got about three people I want to list out that have been in bad sin. We caught them. One said a dirty word this week, you know. One, it's not like that. This is regular, habitual defiance to Scripture. God, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And then the church comes along. A group comes along and says, we love you so much. And then he says, 
So if they don't listen to you, you treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. You treat them like they don't know the Lord. And he says, so whatever you do on earth, guess what? Whatever you bind up on earth, it's bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, it's loose in heaven. So therefore, where two or three are you gathered together in my name, I'm there with you. What's Jesus saying? In accountability, you call somebody out, I'm with you. It's not just one person going, I got an issue to pick with you. No, no, no. These are a group of people. Now, let me just ask, ask you that question, right? So the next time you're in a small church gathering and someone says, well, brothers and sisters, I know there's not many of us here, but where two or three are gathered together in his name, he's there in our midst. They go, you're right, he's there in our midst. And we want to talk about everybody's issues in here. Okay, right? That would, that would even thin out the two to three a little bit more, don't you think? But this is what this passage is about, that if there are a group of people in the church who say, we're worried about you, that Jesus is going, I'm with you in that moment. I back you in that moment. Do what you need to do for the sake of accountability. Because many of you know this. You ever had a place in your life where you wish somebody had been a little bit harder on you earlier on? Okay, Somebody had stopped you a little bit further back? This is what this passage is. Now, preconceived notions goes to this passage. He goes, it just means if you've got a small church, you're all right. You go to this passage and you just read the paragraph. And it says, no, no, no. When you've got to call people out love, Jesus is saying, I'm there with you. I'm there with you. So preconceived notions allow us to miss the main meaning of this text. Also, traditional experience can, as part of our context, give you an example of how that works out. Our spiritual upbringing has undoubtedly created a filter through which we interpret Scripture, right? We, uh, if you grew up in church, you grew up in a certain type of denomination, and you go, well, our church was non-denominational, that's kind of a denomination, okay? There, there's certain things that bring you together with other churches like you. There's certain kind of traits that you hold as dear. You grew up in a certain way of thinking things. So you grew up in a church that thought, hey, everybody speaks in tongues, or everybody's like, we're afraid of people who speak in tongues. Typically right, okay, right? Well, I'm part of a church that well, you get really loud in worship where you don't love Jesus, and then you, some of you grew up in a church that if you get really loud, you make everybody uncomfortable, right? We just have these experiences that we come through. Same thing as it comes to Scripture. We, we do this. We tend to interpret Scripture based upon how it makes us feel on a particular subject, right? This is one of the most dangerous parts of, of where we get as a church because a lot of times we'll hear something and you'll read a passage of Scripture and you go, I just don't like the way that makes me feel. I don't think God would do that. I don't like... That's why some of you skip certain sections of the Old Testament because sometimes it seems like God is calling His people to do some pretty hard things that are hard to swallow. That's why there's some chapters in the New Testament you go, that makes my head hurt. I'm skipping it, right? That's why some of you have been avoiding Revelation like the plagues mentioned in it, right? It just I, I, don't, I don't understand it. And so we have filter because basically how it makes us feel. Even our familial and ministerial relationships have the ability to skew our understanding of Scripture. Well, Mama always said it was like this, right? My pastor back home said this. It was like the college student who came to me one time and uh, was a part of the Bible study, and she said, Pastor Travis, it's weird. She said, why does everybody bring a Bible to the Bible study? I said, well, because we studied the Bible in it. She said, I grew up in a church that you were not encouraged to have a Bible, that only the priest was supposed to have one because we couldn't be trusted with it. So she had never read the Bible. So I did the unthinkable. I got her a Bible. She started reading this thing. She came back about a month later. She goes, you know, half the stuff we do in our church is not in this book. <laughs> and a bunch of stuff in here we don't do. 
and, and, and just that ministerial, that denominational, that religious, that church-wide, and sometimes familial, my parents think this, my granddaddy said this, and we find ourselves in the experience doing this. Like, so with this, it can skew our understanding of Scripture. So just think about this question for a second. If you were to answer this, and, and, and just don't overthink this, but what one book of the Bible would you think has the Antichrist in it? Revelation, right? Can I tell you there's only one book in the Bible that the word Antichrist is used, and it's not the book of Revelation. It's 1 John. Antichrist is not. Is the figure of the Antichrist in Revelation? Yes, he is alluded to. The only book in the Bible that has the word Antichrist is 1 John. And you know what he says? You looking for the Antichrist? Guess what? A lot of them already come. There's a few of them out there. There's probably some more to come. People that are anti what Jesus is doing, that's what John says. Now, I say that to go, some of you grew up in a system that if your pastor liked Revelation, he really liked Revelation, right? And he would teach things about the Antichrist, about the rapture, about the second coming, about the seals, about this kind of stuff. And some of us have our understanding of Jesus' second coming on the Left Behind series rather than the Bible. Right? Anybody read those books or watched that movie? I'm not saying anything like it's bad, but most of us go, all of my understanding about Scripture came from that movie. Well, you might want to read the book that supposedly inspired the movie. You know? Maybe that's a better source to go to. There's a lot of things we have traditional experience, and you go, where do you get that from? I don't know. I just always believe that. Everybody's always said that. I saw this movie once. My pastor said this. My mom said that. You might have your eyes open up if you'd say, so what does Scripture actually teach? We also have theological bias. So ways we think about God, we can bias one way or the other. We can approach the text looking for a particular slant to a specific topic. If you want to find a verse for whatever you want to do, you probably can find it out there. You probably can. You can twist stuff just like the devil did. Um, I once was uh, told by someone who thought that... Um, homosexuality was okay in the Bible. And the reason, the proof that he gave me that homosexuality was okay in the Bible was that because David and Jonathan were best friends and Jesus had 12 disciples and they were all guys. That was the explanation he gave. Now, most of you in that room go, that's ridiculous because there's actually Bible verses that says against that. You'd be right. But what does that show? Somebody is desperately wanting God's word to give a stamp of approval on what he wanted to do. So you have a bias. You, you can go looking for it. You can take something out of context and probably get the Bible to give you a stamp of approval on anything you want to say if you take a verse out of context. If you take a verse out of context, you can do it so, so simple. Uh, we tend to avoid, ignore, or defend passages that do not agree with our biased convictions. We'll just avoid them altogether. Um, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be straight, a page out of my testimony. Um... <clears throat> I went to Bible college, and I had never, ever heard the word Calvinism or Reformed theology or predestination when I got there. And when I got there, that's all people wanted to talk about. So much so, they're like, oh, da, da, da. I didn't want to read Romans chapter 9. If you've ever read Romans chapter 9, it'll make your head hurt, right? It'll make your head hurt. I didn't want to read it because the people who were believing a certain way, I didn't like the way that they were um, talking about God it didn't make me feel good I didn't like it it wasn't based on what I was used to so you know what I did I just ignored the chapter altogether Bible reading plan mm, skip that chapter right and I'm going at some point I had to realize this you will never ever find God in a bad light you realize that 
you never find God in a bad light. So I decided one day, I'm going to read Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read it until I'm blue in the face. I'm going to read it until I can understand this and embrace this. And one of the most beautiful things in it, he says about God's uh, working in our salvation. He says, basically, some of you are not going to like the way that God is the author. I mean, he's sovereign over salvation. You know what he gets down to and says? Does the piece of pottery able to look at the potter and go, what did you do making me this way? You don't have the pot. The pot doesn't say that. He's like, I'm just happy to be here. Okay, right? I I cannot say you made me wrong. And while I don't think Romans chapter 9 answers all the ramifications about God's responsibility and our responsibility when it comes to salvation, I do realize this. What it helped me understand was, who am I ever to question God's ways in the first place? I know better than you, God. Oh, really? That's the point of the chapter at some level. Who are you to find fault with the Almighty? And so I I came across that chapter saying, you know what? There are certain words in the Scripture that I can't avoid anymore that I've at least got to wrestle with and go down to, and I realize I'm not going to see God in a bad light, and I came out stronger of a conviction, probably more evangelistic than I've ever had, and also I can sleep better at night because I know that God is in control. But one of the things that happened in, in all that study and all that preparation that at some point I realized, if God told me through Romans chapter 9, if God said to come into heaven, you got to st- uh, s- stand on your head and cluck like a chicken for 21 days, guess what? we got to do it. He's God and I'm not. That's the point of the passage. That's the point of the passage. And so sometimes in trying to avoid something, we're actually missing out something so incredibly helpful. So what beliefs do you have that you cannot defend from Scripture? That's where I would go. Um had someone recently, we came up with our discipleship plans a couple years ago, and somebody told me, I don't really have a doctrinal area that I need to improve on because I believe everything the Bible says. I said, oh, really? That's impressive. That's good. I said, so you know everything? Yeah, I know everything. I'm good on all that stuff. I said, can you defend it to somebody? And they went, uh. I said, so if somebody came to you with a nagging question, they said, here's the nagging question. It has to do with sexuality and marriage right now, and it's an argument I'm having with a family member. And I said, if they came to you right now, could you open up God's Word and show them from God's Word what the Bible teaches rather than what you've been taught all your life? He said, no, I could not. I said, that's where you need to start working. So you know what God's Word says on it, not our opinions. So look at 1 John chapter second, uh, chapter 4 for a moment. You're like, are you talking about the Antichrist? Okay, you're getting close, okay? Right? <laughs> 1 John chapter 4. Which, by the way, in two weeks, we're going to start going through this book together. We're going to go for three months, starting in chapter 1 and make it all the way to chapter 5 before the end of the year and go through this. This book is all about this. Make sure that you know that you know that you know that you're saved. Make sure that you know that you're loving other people. Make sure that you know that you're growing. So I can't wait two weeks. We're going to start this, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and go all the way through it. Uh, But right now, I want to just look at chapter 4 for a brief moment where it says... Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Now, right there, some of y'all just need to stop and realize that, okay? There are a lot of spiritual people that are not biblical people, okay? A lot of people who seem real spiritual that you go, I don't know what you got that from. Sounds like some kind of version of the Bible plus a fortune cookie and something that your grandma told you, right? It, 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 It sounds spiritual, right? It may not be biblical. Everything spiritual is not of the Spirit. He says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By the way, some of them are bestsellers on the Christian living book section. Okay? 
False prophets. False prophets. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the what? There it is. Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of what? Spirit of error. So what is true? What's false? How do we do this? Well, we don't impose our theological bias onto what Scripture teaches. We come in through a humble posture realizing we want to know what God's Word teaches. Go to the back side of your handout because we need to talk about the author's context because if we talk about ours, kind of hinted at this last week to start the process, but I want you to think through this and we'll work through this rather quick. But within this, there's kind of five sections I want you to think about when you read a book in the Bible. The first off, there's a historical context, right? To understand the main point of a passage, we must acknowledge the time frame of when it was written, Okay. To understand the main point of a passage, we must acknowledge the time frame of when it was written. Um, Bible verse has meaning depending upon whether it was written before Jesus or after Jesus was on the earth, right? Makes sense? Before they're in exile, if they're in exile or they're out of exile, that just alone brings so much more meaning to the passage. Number two, understanding the passage in the context of the grand narrative of the Bible will assist us in allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. So, when you open up 1 John, or you open up 1 Samuel, I know that you may not know all the complexities of the entire story, but it would help if you knew the big picture of what's going on in Scripture. Um, I probably, first time I ever did this was probably, I don't know, 14 years ago in ministry, and it became one of my favorite things to do, is to preach through the whole Bible in one sermon. I've done that here at our church uh, once on a Sunday and a couple times at Equip or something, but just to say, let me give you the big picture, right? Uh, it's Genesis through Revelation. It's the one st- a narrative story that God's doing. And the reason why this is so important is if we don't know it, we can easily take context um, out of case. We, we take uh, Scripture out of context and don't get the real meaning of it. So what comes to your mind when you hear the name of these biblical characters? So let me just give you this example. <coughs> When I say David, you think Goliath. Goliath. Okay, makes sense. When I say Moses, you think Red Sea, Ten Commandments. Uh, when I say Elijah, you think prophet, fire, right? When I say Abraham, you think sacrifice, Isaac, right? And here's a question. How many of you could get those four guys in chronological order when they came? Think about it for a second. You're like, uh, maybe. Okay. And you go, is that important? Absolutely it is. Now, I'm not saying, folks, here, here, here we say, we're making progress, right? I'm not expecting you to know all this stuff by the end of tonight. But, but let me tell you something. You've got to get this somewhat in your head of understanding how this goes. All right, so just because some of you are dying to know, right? All right. First one is Abraham. That's right. Good job. Second one would be? Moses, oh, you're doing great. Third, David, and then Elijah. Okay, some of y'all were like 75 to get a good job. Okay, um, almost there. So Abraham, Moses, 
David, Elijah, why is that important? Let me tell you really quickly why. Because God looked at all the people on the earth when they were trying to build a tower of Babel, trying to earn their way to heaven to work their way up to God. God says, that's not going to work. And he came down to one man. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make you a father of nations. It's going to bless all the nations of the earth. And so through that nation, one day grew up to a people that they actually moved. That big family of Abraham went into Egypt as the uh, welcome guest of Pharaoh under his great, great, grandson named Joseph. And then all of a sudden Joseph is the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And all of Israel goes into that nation love. But then generation after generation happens. Those people are forgotten and enslaved out by the Egyptians as Israelites. And one day God sends someone from that family named Moses to live in that house of Pharaoh. And then calls him out and says now you are going to lead my people out because they are not meant to be slaves. They are meant to be my sons, my daughters in the land which I have set out for them. Moses, you will let those people go. And he led those people out through the wilderness to the promised land and established them in the land of Canaan where the people started having tribes and eventually they had priests and eventually they had different people. And then all of a sudden one day they said, we want a king. We want a king like everybody else. And God gave them a king just like they wanted and everything they did not need in the King Saul. And then King Saul fell apart. He goes, now I'm going to show you a man after my own heart whose name is David and he's going to be a king after my own heart even though he's a train wreck every other day. I'm going to use him. I'm going to magnify him. And it's going to be at the height of what Israel goes to. And he's going to have a son named Solomon who's going to continue to grow. But then he's going to get prideful and the nation is going to fall apart. And eventually those people will be sent into exile. Israel over here. Judah over here. And there will be prophets named Elijah who says, no matter what happens in our nation, we've got to be a people who know our God. That's why it's important. To be able to look at that. Now here's the thing, guys. When you see that, you go, now Moses makes sense even deeper in that, right? Oh, the story about Moses is about just being brave. No, it's not. It's about that all the nations may know that, that there's one God. David's about throwing a sling and hitting his stuff. No, no, no. It's about this, that Goliath and the Philistines and everybody may know there is one true God in the earth. Elijah's name literally means my God is Yahweh. You might have a God called whatever you want, but let me just tell you, we have one God and one God alone, and he is living, and he will take yours out. Every single one of these guys point the same thing. And if you don't understand where this goes, we get to moralistic kind of lessons that are literally on the level of Aesop's fables versus what God's Word teaches. Sitting about you going, I need to be braver. You need to get right with the Lord is what you need to get, Right? We need to realize it's not just about us. It's about what God is doing among the nations. Sorry, I got a little wound up, but that happens every time. Okay. <clears throat> Historical context. Number two, cultural context. Reading any portion of Scripture forces us to enter into a culture in which we did not what? Live. You read anything in this book from Genesis to Revelation, guess what? There's something culturally that just doesn't come naturally to you. It doesn't. We didn't live there. Uh, I didn't live in the time of Abraham, Moses, David, or Elijah. So gathering solid resources can help you understand geographical locations, cultural phrases, and even social customs, folks. Getting good resources. And you go, I don't have a lot of resources. I don't have a lot of stuff. I, I can't be walking around with a lot of commentaries. Let me tell you one of the best things that you can do, okay? Get a good study Bible, okay? Study Bible means it's going to be a little thicker, okay? And underneath those... Here's what happens in a good study Bible. Every time you're reading along and you go, I got a question about that, there's going to be some little footnote that says, by the way, we know you're questioning this. Let me tell you what that means. Almost every single time. 
Now, in those footnotes, there are going to be um, human authors' explanations, and are they perfect? No, they're not perfect, but they help you understand these geographical locations. They help you understand cultural phrases and even social customs. Let me give you a great example. What does it mean to filter the gnat and swallow the camel in Matthew 23, 24? Okay? Because Jesus looks at the most religious people in his land and says, you guys filter the gnat and swallow the camel. And we all go, huh? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, first time I read through it, I had no clue, so I, I looked it up. What does filtering the gnat even mean? Back in those days, they did not have Aquafina purified water, you know, wherever you could get it, right? So if you drank water, guess what happened? You'd have to filter it somewhat. And so these Pharisees that Jesus would talk about would have these little filters that would filter out all the gnats in the water so you wouldn't swallow the gnats and get some type of disease and get sick from it. And he says, you guys filter uh, scripture and filter life and filter faith the way you filter your water. You get so tiny and little minuscule about the most dumbest things in the world and yet it's like you're swallowing a camel because you're missing simple things like love, faithfulness, and mercy to other people. You got all your little tiny religious details all in order. Yeah, you're filtering the gnat, and you're swallowing a camel in the process. You don't know how to love somebody when they're in need. You don't know how to help somebody when they're in need. You know, stop filtering the gnat spiritually and stop swallowing the camel. Do what you need to. Now, I wouldn't understand that unless I had to ask somebody, right? So get a good study Bible. Get a good resource that'll help you. Number three, the authorial context, right? So this is the author. What context did he write in? Well, the more information we can gather regarding the author, the better we can understand the passage, right? The better we can understand the passage. So we want to know, well, who is this author that wrote this? In reality, there's only a couple of books that we're really unsure about who wrote it. Most of them you can find out very simply. And so in reading the Bible, just as a reminder, we attempt to discover the authorial intent. So if David wrote this psalm and he intended it to mean this and God inspired him to mean this, it's not going to mean something different to you and also be correct. Fair? Okay? Um, had a conversation one time um, with a guy who is of the Baha'i faith, which basically means this, our religions are all working together, the same thing, we're all going to end up in the same heaven, we're all following the same God, just different ways. And I said, okay, give you an example. I said, so I'm a Christian, and I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He goes, that's great for you. I said, well, but I have a Jewish friend who thinks that Jesus was a false prophet. And I got a Muslim friend who thinks that Jesus was just a prophet, but not the Son of God. He's like, yeah, but that's okay for all three of them. And I said, all three of them cannot be correct at the same time. Right? Jesus can't be a false prophet, the Son of God, or just a regular prophet who, who you know, went to heaven at the same One or... None of them are true, but two of them cannot be true. Three of them definitely cannot be true. The reason why I say that is you can't have one meaning of what this verse means to you, and God inspired the authors to go, that's not what I intended that to say. Well, it means this to me. Who cares? Okay? It doesn't matter what it means to you. What did the author mean? What does God mean to get across to you? Once again, if the speed limit out there says 55, it's not saying, I think I'm interpreted to 83, right, okay? <laughs> the person who wrote that message, they expect you to follow it. It's same in Scripture. So a text cannot mean what it never meant. Just as a reminder, we've said this before. You'll hear me say it till I'm blue in the face. A text cannot mean now what it never meant back then. We always have to remember that. So to know the author, we want to really understand the context what importance does James' description have in light of his identity, right? Uh, anybody here like the book of James? Love the book of James, right? It's practical, down to the point, okay? 
Um, I want you to turn Matthew 13, 55 really quick. See something. Matthew 13, 55. This will help us understand something. Talk about the book of James. And you go, why, why are we going to Matthew? Because this will help us out. Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. People are unsure about his message. And eventually, um, people are so confused about him because he is doing miraculous things, but they go, that he can't be who we think he is. So Matthew 13, 55 says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Who are they speaking about there? Okay, Jesus, yeah. And his adoptive father on this earth was a guy by the name of? Joseph. Is this not Joseph the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, what? James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Here's four other brothers that Jesus had on this earth. Did you know that? Even goes on and look, verse 56. And not all are his sisters with us? He's got brothers and sisters. Okay, so I don't know about your family when you were growing up, but you know how if, if you know how like there was that child in your family growing up that never got in trouble? You know? Oh, never going to be hard on her. You know, whatever kind of stuff. Like, they're going to be easy on the baby boy, right? Okay. Imagine there's a sibling fight and Jesus is one of the siblings. Well, you and I both know it's never his fault, right? Okay. He's never the one who's in trouble. Yeah, Jesus did it right again, right? Okay. Here's the deal. They go, hey, we know Jesus. Isn't this Joseph and Mary's kid? And he's got brothers named, first one, what was it? James. And throughout history, what we realize is that this James is not James the disciple, but it is the guy who wrote the book of James. So the, the book of James that you love so much was actually written by the, what I would call the half-brother of Jesus, if you will, right? You go, why is that important? Because what James 1.1 says. You ready for it? James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings to you. Consider it all a joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Wait, James, you just had your introduction. Why didn't you say that you were the brother of Jesus? Because he wants you to know that Jesus is more than his brother. He's his Lord. He's a Savior. Now, does that tell you something about James? It tells you something huge. I, if I was Jesus' baby brother, I'd be like writing that on all my books, right? Here I am, Travis, the baby brother of Jesus, by my book, right? And he goes, oh, no, 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 I'm not going baby brother. I mean, how many of you, you probably had a sibling who thought he was God or she was God, right? But James actually was, and he believed it. He said, I, I'm writing now, not as a baby brother of Jesus, but as a servant to him. This helps us understand the authorial context. Fourth is the literary context. We must respect the genre organization and flow of a scriptural passage to discern its theological contribution. Genre means what type of literature is it? Um, Psalms are written as poetry, even though they don't rhyme when you're reading it. They're written in Hebrew poetry. And it's different than when you're reading a narrative, say, in the book of Judges. It just feels different. It acts different. It's got different contexts with it. Narrative is different than what you would call um, exhortation, teaching passages. So we have to understand to discern its theological contribution. And if we only read Scripture through small sections without respect to the literary context, we miss the fuller picture of each book of the Bible. Just like we saw in Matthew 18.20, where, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there. Folks, that's not enough. We want to see bigger sections with that, right? We want to understand. So if we only read Scripture through small sections without respect to the literary context, we miss the fuller, fuller picture. And so this is why it's so important um, I want you to think about a passage of Scripture, and there's probably one 
ceremony that you've been to in your life where this verse has been quoted? What type of relationship does it speak of when it says that two people come together and your people shall be my people? Where do you typically hear that at? What type of ceremony? A wedding, right? You want to know exactly what's happening in this passage? It's not when Ruth met Boaz and getting herself a husband. You know what this is? Ruth, 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 Ruth telling her mother-in-law, I ain't got anybody else. Your people should be my people. Your God will be my God. I'll go where you go. So sometimes I've seen a bride and a groom uh, commit these verses, and I'm going to say, you're speaking to his mother-in-law actually right now, okay? <laughs> the passage is not, I'm going to unite myself to this man. Your God shall be my God. Your people should be my people. It was this, to a mother-in-law, your, your son, my husband died, so guess what? I guess I'm with you from now on. Some of y'all need to reconsider when you put your wedding together, okay? Just saying, okay? You might want to really, really strongly consider, do you want that in there? But you can just take that small section and go, I know what that speaks to. Not unless you know the context. Look how it's put together. Then finally, the the reader's context, not you and I reading it. Because guess what? Before you or I ever laid our eyes on the book of James, guess what? It was written to some other people first. And you've got to think through that lens. It helps you to understand God's word so much better. Each passage of scripture was God's word to them before it became God's word to us. Right? So as I said in James 1.1, to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad, there were religious people that were all over the place, and James writes this letter to them to say, hey, I'm writing this to you folks, and they read it somewhere. There was a church in Ephesus that one day that got a letter from the Apostle Paul, and the preacher says, I got something from Paul. Y'all want to read it? Yeah, read it, right? There's one day there's a church in Philippi. We got a letter from Paul. Read it. Oh, they're excited about chapter 1. They're excited about chapter 2. They're excited about chapter 3. And then chapter 4, he starts calling women out by name who were fussing and fighting in the church. Wouldn't that be awesome, right? Like, oh, that, hey, Sally and Sarah, y'all better watch it. Paul knows, okay, he hears about it. He's in jail. He's going to get y'all, okay? Like, this is just real. And so to not respect that, you just think it automatically goes to you. You're going, you're missing something. He was writing to a church that he'd been through and loved and discipled and there's so much more in there than we just sort of graphed into. To gain the fullest meaning of a text, ask the question, how would the original readers interpret this passage? And when you do that, you really can start understanding the better way of how we should understand it. What, what were the original readers? What was the original audience? What would they have understood? So to so give you an example as, as we conclude tonight, typically when we think about the book of Revelation, we think that it has everything to do with Christ's return. And it does. But let me tell you where the purpose, I think, has been messed up. A lot of us read the book of Revelation and get really frustrated because it doesn't answer all of our questions about how Jesus is going to come back. And I believe it was never intended to. You know what I think the, the book of Revelation was supposed to be about? Well, let's think about the original author. It was a guy by the name of John, right? Um, this is the way I think about it. If our present interpretation would not make sense to the original audience, we probably have an incorrect interpretation. So if we, how we interpret the book of Revelation or the book of anything, if the way we interpret it wouldn't make sense to the original audience, we probably have an incorrect interpretation. So in the context of Revelation, there's a guy named John who wrote this, right? Jesus' best friend, one of the original disciples. What was John trying to get across to Christians when he wrote this verse in Revelation 1-9? Listen to it. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
So here is John who's been imprisoned, left on an island kind of like the island of Alcatraz where prisoners go to die. He says, I'm on this island, and he says it first few verses. I, John, your brother and partner in the what? Tribulation. What was the book of Revelation about? Hey, all you Christians that are out there being burned at the stakes, being hunted down and killed for helping people and loving people and believing in Jesus, those people who think they aren't going to make it, I'm writing something to you to say, hold on, we're going to make it. Hold on, I don't have all the details. I have all this comes together. I don't know exactly when he's coming back, but I do know this. He's coming back, and we're going to win. We're going to win. Hang in there, folks. So for those as a part of the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient, what? Endurance. Keep going. So I'm going to show you the vision that he gave me. To tell you, you may not have all the answers that you want answered, but are your questions answered? But you will have this. I can endure. Why? Because I believe he's coming. I know that he's coming. And it helps us understand truly the context of what the scripture was written and helps us understand the Bible better. Let me pray for us. Father, we know that when we open up your scripture that we have a context through which we read it, but there's also a context in which it was written. And to help us truly understand and unpack the message of the word, the more that we study ourselves, the more we apply it, the more that we get it in our life, the more that we see how all the things come together, we can truly see you for who you are and the message that you're trying to get. So help us understand the word, not the way that we want to hear it, but the way that you wrote it for us. And Lord, I pray that it would guide us. God, will you just inspire these folks this very week to get in the word and to not get frustrated, but to keep making progress. And Lord, I just pray that we would be able to see you closer as we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.